When you open the door for somebody else. Welcome back, everyone, to the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. This is our extremely exciting part two episode with the one and only Barbara Lowe Fisher. If you have just seen this one give you a notification on your phone, don't start this episode until you go back and listen to part one because there's so much you're going to want to learn about her and about her story and about how she factors into this movement in such a great way. And we're going to continue part two, like we do with all of our other interviews, discussing the work and the uh, educational background, the research and um, and the contribution that this person, this influential person, which is what we aim to do, is have these people to inspire you guys and inspire us um, on the show so that all the listeners can benefit from what they have to offer. And so today we're going to talk about part two, and Dr. Bob is going to lead with many of the questions he's come up with about Barbara Lowe Fisher and her work and where she's come from and how she's gotten to this point and any advice maybe she has for us at this point as well. Welcome back, Barbara Lowe Fisher. Yeah, Barbara, thanks for uh, hanging on the phone with us. And um, Oh. Yeah, and it's just fun because I, I do feel like um, we're just chatting with a friend, you know. And I mean, I've known Barbara for uh, you know, ever since uh, 1997. Yeah, the see, I graduated in 95. So I, I would have met you, I would have seen you at something, I think it was 1994, Almost that that Greg to me. We're we're, we're going to talk about it, but I've known you for many many years. I consider you a, a good friend, and I love uh, connecting with you at conferences from time to time. So then, tell me, was there anything on part one that you did not know about Barbara that you learned today? Actually, almost all of it, I would say, it was new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's I mean, so great. I mean, Barbara and I have never sat and, and chatted you know through this, mm-hmm. and um, actually, that just reminded me, Barbara, I'm going to be seeing you. Um, in about uh, a month from now in Washington, D.C. And actually, I guess maybe we want to give a little shout out to our listeners um, on the East Coast. There is the vaccine injury awareness event. Epidemic. Yeah, the, vaccine the, injury epidemic event. Yeah, VIE is what they call it. Vaccine injury epidemic event. Um, I'm going to be out there for three days. Uh, Cheryl and, and my, our youngest uh, son is joining us. Um and there's, you know, we're, we're going to do some legislating and, and we're going to watch a screening of Vax 2. And then there's the, the big event on November 14 um, in Washington, D.C., where, where Barbara, myself, I mean, pretty much everybody, well, everybody except for one person. <laughs> Melissa's not going to be there and I'm so sad. Um, uh, everybody is going to be there and we're all going to be giving uh, speeches on the mall. You know the the right in the middle of Washington D.C., uh, right there on the Mall of the Smithsonian, and um, and we're gonna our voices are gonna be heard. You know, Barbara, you're 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 gonna be there, and so I look forward to seeing you. But I would love if everybody who's a listener who's on the East Coast or your West Coast, wherever you are, I mean, you can if you Google search you know VIE event vaccine. Uh, injury epidemic event for Washington DC. You'll go to their website. You'll get. Uh, you can. You can buy. You know tickets to the event. Um, some of the event I th- is. I think is free. And uh, uh, but I would love to see you there. Please come up to me. Um, please do not hesitate to come up to me. I'm a hugger. I love hugs. Um, uh, and and uh, so I'd look forward to seeing everybody there. But come out. You know. 
see Barbara and talk to her, tell her, you know, what, what her work has meant to you. So I just wanted that, that reminded me you're going to be there, Barbara. So I just thought it'd be cool uh, yeah, if, it'd be if fun you know, to get together. yeah, we'll be putting this out, you know, probably next week or the week after. So people will have lots of, uh, uh, heads up to make it to DC November 14. And, um, let's, let's let Washington, um, hear our voices and, and realize that vaccine injury is real and change has to come. Well, I'm so happy that after all these years of knowing her in our last podcast, you're able to actually hear new stuff, stuff you've mm-hmm. never heard yeah, about her. I yeah. mean, this is exactly why we do things a little differently um, with our interviews and why we want to have these intimate conversations and just really get to know people, not just so much what the sound bites are for right, interviews. Right, we want to talk yeah. to people and we need to have that exchange. And when you do see her uh, in November, you're going to be able to, you guys are going to be able to make eye contact and go, hey, we, we shared in these moments on an even deeper level, which is, right. which is what we all need to be doing. And that's the way that we make these differences are, are connecting this way. So right. I'm happy about that and excited to hear what you want to talk to Barbara yeah. about so, um, today, right so, now. So uh, welcome, welcome back in Barbara. And so I'm, I'm curious, just kind of just to pick up, uh, um, I mean, your, your son had the vaccine reaction, uh, Christian, and you started fighting back with a group of other parents, and you wanted to increase vaccine safety, and you wanted to increase recognition for the already injured children. And then we eventually learned that that whole cell DTP vaccine was doing what it, what it was doing to so many children. And now it's we also know it's not just that vaccine; it can happen with any vaccines. But I'm curious with that vaccine, what was the level of awareness in the public? back in the early 80s when it happened to your child? And how long did it take for them to raise enough awareness so that the public, the government, and the medical community finally acknowledged it? Kind of take us through that process. Well, when we formed our organization, the Satisfied Parents Together, we were all from the Washington, D.C. area. And Jeff Schwartz, who was our first president, uh, he was this environmental law lawyer. He, he had worked on the Clean Air Act. He knew many, many people in Washington. One of the first things that happened after DPT Vaccine Roulette, the show that I saw in April of, of 1982, was produced by the NBC affiliate here in Washington, D.C. The first thing that happened was the companies. Uh, went to the vaccine companies. There were four of them, Wyeth, Letterly, uh, Merck, and Connaught. They went to Congress and said, you need to pass legislation that removes liability, all liability, because we're going to go out of business. We're going to leave the country without any vaccines, childhood vaccines, if you don't protect us. So we got involved because basically Congress said, look, we're going to have to work on legislation to try to defuse this. And you can come to the table if you want to, or you do not. You don't have to come to the table. We're passing some legislation here. And so what Jeff did was, because he was up on the hill all the time, we he would be up there saying, "Wait a minute, you can't, you can't do this. You can't, you can't cut off lawsuits when these these products, this DPT vaccine, is hurting children." And I, of course, I was mad because I hadn't been told anything. I said, "You've got to." put in safety provisions in any legislation. You've got to have information given to parents about the diseases and about the vaccines and what the risks are and et cetera. And you need to have the doctors reporting and you need to have them recording and 
you know, so we we insisted in the legislation they were working on that there be safety provisions and research provisions. And we insisted that they could not let the, the companies and the doctors off of liability. That if they were going to do protection, they couldn't be complete protection. There had to be some liability. Otherwise, there was no ability of the people to put financial pressure on the companies and doctors to do the right thing. Right. And no incentive, okay. right? No incentive no for incentive. them. No mm-hmm. incentive. Right. We never, ever abandoned that position. It took four years, almost four a little uh, to be trained, 1982, and the law was passed in 86. With you talk about David and Goliath, right? Are you kidding? We were a handful of parents, there was no internet, no cell phones. Okay, uh, hardly anyone had a personal computer, and we were going up there and we were trying to hold the line against the pharmaceutical industry, the federal health agencies, and all the medical trade associations. Well, what, to make a long story short, what happened was that law was passed in 1986 and the liability that was removed from the manufacturers was for failure to warn. That, that warning duty was turned over to the Centers of Disease Control and those became the vaccine information statements. Now, when those vaccine information statements first came out, because I worked on the original ones, hmm. After wow. the law was passed. Wow. They were like 20 pages long. Wow. Wow. Seriously? Oh, wow. yeah. I, I'm, I, yeah. Look, I am writing this book on the history of the law, and I am determined to get it finished in the next six months. Mm-hmm. And I am going to put all of the documents up on the Internet. I am putting them up on MVIC.org, the entire history, because I want everybody in the world mm-hmm. to have access to this information, and I want it to be free. Yeah. So I am putting it up, and we will print do a print version. But I want this up, and I want it up this year. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell people what really happened back then because there's been a lot mm-hmm. of misinformation about it. Okay, what what else did that law? When that law was passed, we got the VAERS system, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, centralized into one system that all the doctors were supposed to report to, but right. there was no teeth put into it for failure to report. So it still is a passive system, even though it's on the books. We got the duty of doctors to have to write down in the med- in, in the record uh, the vaccine manufacturer's name and uh, lot number. Uh, we got them to have to, they were supposed to <laughs> be right, uh, entering into the permanent medical record when any there was a health deterioration, when there was reactions. They were supposed to be writing those down. Uh, many times they don't do that. And they were supposed to give parents vaccine information statements ahead of time before vaccination. And there was a duty for HHS to continue to research to make sure the vaccines were as safe right. as possible, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. Okay. All of those things, NVIC got in there. Us parents got in, the, in there. What else did we do? There was no protection for the doctors when that law was passed in November of 1986. The doctors were fully liable. Okay, no protection for them or anyone who gave vaccines. And there was there was no protection for the companies for design defect. That is failure to make a vaccine less reactive. Okay, the Reagan administration opposed that bill to the bitter end. The companies opposed that bill at the end. They wanted complete liability protection. They didn't get it. What happened in 1987? Without our knowing it, 
in the dead of night, at the end of December of 1987, the American Academy of Pediatrics and AMA got an amendment attached to a budget reconciliation bill that let the doctors off the hook. Wow. That was never agreed to by us, wow. ever. Wow. What happened in 2011? The Supreme Court, with Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg opposing in a mm -hmm. brilliant dissent. Yeah. And Bruce versus Wyeth, the Supreme Court basically made law and said that the, that the Congress really intended to let the, the companies completely off the hook and vaccines are unavoidably unsafe, and therefore there shall be no liability for the companies, including for design defects. So that complete freedom from liability didn't completely come until 2011, but Correct. back in 1986, pharma was given virtual, virtually almost full freedom from liability. Well, they were given on design on failure to warn. Right. Okay. That right. was the reason that failure to warn was so important for them was because they were losing the oral polio vaccine lawsuits. Right. See, back in the back in in, in 1976, there was a swine a, a, a bogus another bogus fear mongering about a swine flu pandemic that was supposed to happen that didn't happen, and that that was where the precedent was set for letting the manufacturers off the hook for injuries. It was for the swine flu in '76. That right. was ten years before the 1986 hmm. National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And so that precedent was set on that, but they were angry about the oral polio vaccine lawsuits because the oral polio vaccine was a live virus vaccine that could cause polio, vaccine strain polio in a recipient or in a close contact that came in contact with the body fluids of a, a person recently vaccinated who was shedding polio virus, right. uh, vaccine strain polio virus. We also worked on getting that vaccine replaced with an inactivated vaccine. But the thing that, uh, at any rate, what I'm trying to say is that people don't understand that the law that is, is in place today is not recognizable to the law yeah. that was passed mm, in 86. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, especially, is after that law was passed, and in addition to the 87 amendment that left doctors on the hook, the Congress made amendments. The same people who supported that law went in and gutted the law. The same hmm. legislators that supported the law gutted the law hmm. afterwards hmm. by weakening the, the parent information packets, the, yes. the information that would be on the vaccine information statement, by, by allowing Department of Health and Human Services and Justice to go in there and through rulemaking authority weaken the compensation program, dismantle the table of compensable events, this law is not recognizable right. to the law that we signed off on. Wow. Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And I, we look forward to actually seeing you reveal the entire story of this. And actually, well, we'll maybe we'll have you back once you're done with this work and putting this all together. I think it'll be fun to maybe have you or back. Maybe next while we year. are out for an announcement we can't make yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we could do that if that's yeah. the, that was one on, that's on my list. Yeah, we might find ourselves in Virginia or Florida, you know, uh, coming up soon. Barbara will do this in person. But I'm just curious, Barbara, what was that like for you? And I'm, I'm going to use the term as, as just a mom, um, but 
part of a group of other, you know, just parents, but, you know, lawyers and maybe a few doctors as well. What was that like to just walk into the Capitol building and talk to these legislators and try to get them to listen to you to in order to help, you know, get what what, you know, at the time you had you had thought was going to be an amazing, wonderful law in every way. Um yeah, I mean, what was that like to just walk in there and get them to listen? How did you guys get them to listen to you against someone as powerful as Big Pharma? Well, it was a different time. In the in early 80s, the, in the 60s and 70s, the lawyers in this country were able to go in because all the laws that had been passed in the last 35 years weren't in place. And, and consumer advocacy was welcomed. It was celebrated. Really? really? Absolutely. We had a place at the table because consumer advocacy in making government uh, do a better job was in fashion. And so we were able to get on train. We were able to be taken seriously. And, uh, it, and, and I would do shows like in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was given, accorded some amount of respect for articulating a consumer advocacy position mm-hmm. in a responsible way. And, it, and, and there was also independent media then where now all media is owned by a oh, few corporations. Right. Back then it was very diversified, so they were competing with each other for viewership. And this issue was allowed to be talked about. Now, there still was suppression, okay? I mean, I was supposed to do, oh gosh, I was supposed to do Sally, Jesse Raphael's show after I'd done the Regis Philbin show, and, and, and there was a doctor on there that, that put the kibosh on the Sally, Jesse Raphael show. So there was definitely suppression, but there was enough co- com- competition for viewership that they were, we were able to still have some discussion about this. And um, I would just say that it was a different time. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I was allowed to be on those vaccine advisory committees. I mean, Institute of Medicine, I made public presentations. I co-authored yeah. the yeah. report on communication and vaccination. Uh, I made, uh, I, I did a lot of things. Uh, you know, publicly uh, by sitting on the FDA vaccines and related products advisory committee. I was there when the Gardasil vaccine first came through. I was there when Prevnar 7 came through. Yeah. Uh, you know, I it, it just was a different time now. They have completely cut the people out. Yeah. They have completely yeah. eliminated yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to circle back to that because I want to ask you uh, some more about that. Well, this idea, too, that the media is not allowing this discourse to happen or those who own the media or are are responsible for advertising. um, We've had discussions on PR uh, multiple times as we understand the narrative that's put out on this debate and how to feel about this debate and how to feel about those who question anything in this debate um, is carefully crafted. And like Dr. Bob mentioned on episode one, he said, you started out working in public relations, or that was one of the things that you had done earlier in your um, professional career. And I kind of wanted to know a little bit of how long you worked in that. And did that background in PR sort of help you recognize the way that you're seeing the media spin or the suppression even in today's environment and how the media has shifted over the last 35 years, do you see the PR techniques being used by the medical establishment? 
Well, absolutely. Um, you know, my in my areas that I was in, in in media relations and public relations were, you know, kind of soft areas, uh, um, you know, historic preservation. Uh, I did um, tourism. Um, I was worked for a hospital. I did a lot of um, troubleshooting when, like, there was an anti-abortion protest at the hospital, et cetera. So I learned how to uh, position and how to to present a topic that was controversial uh, for the for the public so that they would understand it more clearly or the position of the hospital or whatever. Um, so, and I came from a medical background, so I, I was immediately understood what I was reading, and I was able to translate that complex information for public consumption. But what I did, I do see today, because I don't believe that I engaged in propaganda. I, I didn't, I was always somebody who, I, I didn't ever want to be involved in telling a lie mm-hmm. or tell or trying to persuade people to believe something that wasn't true. That's just not part of my nature. Right. I'm like a, in, I'm like a compulsive truth teller, mm-hmm. seriously, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even to my detriment, you know, but at any rate, um, uh, but I see propaganda techniques, and if, if you if you if you've studied propaganda, which I have done a little bit of, you can see that there are propaganda techniques that are being used, and they're classic. And uh, so I think that uh, unfortunately, we know that HHS has, has hired behavioral psychologists hmm. and hired analysts and public relations and advertising specialists to 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 position these issues and i think what's most disturbing to me is the demonization the marginalization mm-hmm. yep. the labeling the mm-hmm. blackballing the blacklisting of people this is this is shameful it's shameful that the government has has engaged with industry in this kind of propaganda hmm. and i i uh I'm hoping that the people of this country will, more people will realize what, what's being done. Oh, yeah. So was pharma using these techniques 30, 40 years ago when you first got into this fight? <laughs> and I will be telling some of those things. Yes, uh, there was some of that. But remember, there was more of a firewall back there, back then, between industry and government. Mm. Okay. The public-private partnerships that have grown up in the last 30 years are very were not in place hmm. back in 82. Hmm. And so you had kind of go- government and industry kind of almost like on opposite sides. Hmm. Really? Wow. Kind of. Yeah, I mean what's happened in the last 30 years is 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 amazing and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there has the industry, the insurance industry, the medical industry and government has gone into the states in, and they have passed laws that limit the ability of an average person to sue a company for product liability wow. or to sue a doctor for medical malpractice. So even if you – there are people who have called for an end to the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. I at first thought that was a good idea in 2015 when they took away the personal belief exemption until I started to do the research and realized the legal landscape is not anywhere near what it was in 82, mm-hmm. 87. It's very different. So even if you took down that law, you would have one heck of a time, unless you had a lot of money uh, to even get traction in the States because of these laws that have protected mm-hmm. industry and the medical profession. Wow. So 
I mean, I know it's controversial now because there are people calling for end of law, but if you take down a law that acknowledged, that is official acknowledgement by the government that vaccines can injure and yes. kill people, you're going to lose way more than you're going to gain. Well, and wow. I think most people don't understand how complex the 1986 yeah. law, we did an episode on that uh, a, week or so, a week or so ago, and how this was an omnibus bill that had all different types yeah. of things in it, and the, the vaccine component was was multifaceted, and, and just one element of that was pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies removing liability. The, I think when people are saying they want to, you know, get rid of the law, what they're saying is they want to make pharma liable again, and they right. don't really understand. And I agree with that. Right, right. So, yeah. so but I think what Barbara is saying, and, and we'll probably learn tons more about this in a follow-up interview with you once you're done with your work, but seems like it would not be enough to eliminate that law, because if that law is gone, what else is in place right now out there is equally as bad, maybe worse. Um, so what we probably need is not is to amend that law or get a new law that really creates the system that we need to be in place so that people are protected. So it's it's not as simple as everyone I, thinks. Right? Yeah, idealistically, I, I I think you're right. The the thing is, we have to be pragmatic. Yeah. And right now, in a Congress that has passed the 21st Century Cures Act at the end of 2016. And pharma owns Congress right. because yeah. of these public-private partnerships. And I, I, when I looked at the BBC production, I mean, I had interviewed for the BBC documentary mm -hmm. that was just released. Um, well, it was released in the UK, but uh, I, I, I realized that it is so obvious when they said that DPT vaccine never did cause brain damage. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, we does not that. cause brain damage. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Right. They would love government and industry would love that law down because yeah. all they would do is it, you you'd eliminate theirs, you'd eliminate federal compensation, you'd eliminate any acknowledgement that vaccines can injure and kill, and you have no contraindications and you have no exemptions, and they would pass a law in a heartbeat that would take away all liability anyway. Right. And just say, uh, and, and uh, here's some more money states to eliminate exemptions. Yes. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back. Um, well, this is fascinating. I, I look forward to learning more about that. But I want to go back. So basically, they they passed the 1986 Act, and you and and your group, you know, your uh, um, DPT group, was it parents together? Something dissatisfied parents together. Your work basically then led you to starting, um, you know, that group and building NVIC, uh, the National Vaccine Information Center. I'm curious, what was it like to build that organization? How did you build it? And who was involved from the start? And how did you get all the right people on board together to, to make this <laughs> succeed? Oh, Bob, it's, uh, you know, we were a ragtag little <laughs> group of parents. All right. We were just like, it, we, it was just, we had to satisfy parents together. We were operating out of our basements. We were trying to get donations for $3 parent information packets on DPT right, and for that. Mm -hmm. that I wrote. And um, we were, we didn't have any money. And we almost closed several times in our history. 
Hmm. Uh, when we had run out of money and we were just felt like overwhelmed. And then, as I said, things happened and we didn't shut our doors. Um, really, I have to say, you know, the, in 1993, when we were going to close, it was the chiropractic, the principal chiropractors who I had spoken. I, I spoke to, we were just about to close everything down. And I spoke to a group of 200 chiropractors in Boston, pediatric chiropractors. International Chiropractic Pediatric Association, and they it was the first major speech I'd ever given where I basically told just exactly what I saw, and they gave us about $8,000, and I went back to D.C., and I said to Kathy, we're not closing, mm. and they gave us enough money to keep our doors open, and then there was another major thing that happened when we were going to close around 2006, seven. Um, and Joe Mercola, Dr. Mercola called me in 2008 and he said, I, I want to help you. And I met with him and that, that collaboration has made a big difference for MBIC. Fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's been a, a donor and, and so has a focus for health, Barry Siegel. And I, you know, we, we just have, I feel very blessed, ser- seriously that we now have more resources to be able to do this work. And, um, you know, so we're still here. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys ever think, I mean, back then, did you picture no. it would get this big? No, we and never thought we'd be doing this. I mean, I yeah. thought, I guess it was interesting. I was asked to give a presentation in 1996 when the acellular vaccine was licensed because we worked for 14 years to get that vaccine in here. A wow. safer pertussis vaccine. And I remember that the, the doctors out in the hall before I went on said, well, Barbara, great job. You can go back to, you know, raising your children and everything like that. And I looked at him and I said, oh, no. <laughs> I said, what I've learned about pertussis vaccine, I now started to research the other vaccines. I said, there's a problem here. We well, should have seen the looks on their faces. <laughs> they thought that it, we were going to go away. Wow. Right. Wow. Well, you know, what's interesting is I spoke to um, a local Department of Public Health employee um, that I will not name or locate um, because I've been getting some information there. But what she said to me was basically what what you already know and, and a handful of people know is that there is this goal to bring back now the whole cell um, mm-hmm. DPT vaccine. Right. Um, and part of what what you were saying, part of this idea to try to make it seem like that vaccine never really caused brain damage, mm. but instead it was just a genetic condition in some of these people that would have manifested anyway to take away the public fear of potentially bringing this back and the concerns that might reemerge with that. And we saw Senator Pan even um, make some kind of statement, I, re- I forget which hearing it was, but um, about how they actually found out there really wasn't the damage, brain damage from right. the DPT vaccine. Right. And in reality, it was um, Dravet syndrome. Yes. Yeah, this this genetic yeah. condition that's underlying. Yeah, yeah. Dravet, yeah. Yeah, Dravet, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that's just a very tiny subset. Uh, that particular genetic, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, de novo mutation. <laughs> yeah. I love the word de novo. Um, you know, they, they absolutely uh, cannot write that off. And I know that the BBC production, David Salisbury, 
they they tried to say that DBT vaccine didn't cause brain damage ever. It, it's a complete lie. Yeah, I and agree. they know it. The NCES absolutely found a statistically significant correlation between the receipt of DPT vaccine and previously normal children within seven days of DPT shot having a neurological event. And it was one in 110,000 encephalopathy, one in 310,000 permanent uh, neurological dysfunction. And that was upheld 10 years later by the NCS study and then Institute of Medicine in 1994 upheld uh, that finding as well. So they want to rewrite history. Like I said, they, they don't want that law. They want to be able to take that law down. And uh, because it's acknowledgement that vaccines can injure and kill. And it's interesting that you can see this happening. Like if you can step back and you've witnessed enough of what's going on, you start to see the groundwork that they're laying for something you know that's going to come in the future. So when you start to see these editorials and op-eds and these um, discussions come out in the news media about, oh, it turns out this really didn't happen. It's like, you know, this is a precursor for something coming and it's they want to change and shift public opinion and normalize something for a while for a few years before they bring it to the table again. It's so obvious when you've been in this long enough, even for me, just five years of, of every day all the time, seeing the patterns. It's like you can, just like the medical exemption law that we just dealt with, we talked about it on the podcast in November of last year because we read the study that I said to you, this mm-hmm. is going to be the foundation for them creating a law that they feel they need to tighten up or take in, almost take away the medical exemption. And it's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. If you really pay attention, you can see this stuff coming because it's so right. clear right. the steps that they take. Right. Um, I, I want to, uh, you alluded to this in the last episode, Barbara, but I want to um, thank you and also uh, blame you for okay. bringing me into this fight. And um, I've told, I've told this actually, I told this whole story on the podcast, but I, I didn't really explore so much your personal role in this, but it was um, a shot in the dark that pulled me into this. And, um, and as basically I was in, uh, in my last year of medical school at Georgetown right there in DC, it was 1995. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and and I had already given my first child all of these vaccines, you know, the DPT, the whole cell, the oral polio, all these vaccines. And he was a couple of years old and, and I, you know, I became friends with uh, Greg, you know, we call him rocket scientist, mm-hmm. Greg, and yeah. um, you know who I'm talking about. He's a longtime mm-hmm. friend of yours as well. And Greg basically, um, uh, allowed Cheryl and I and our youngest child to stay at his home uh, in his basement apartment in exchange for me agreeing to agreeing to read a shot in the dark. Yeah. So it's basically, yeah, that was the rent that I paid. And, and I was, you know, almost graduating medical school. And I felt like, well, why would I need to read a book written by some mom somewhere? Yeah. And, uh, and so I sat and Cheryl made me read the book. I read through it. But you know the book, of, of course, how scientific it is. Yeah. The book is nothing but a list of scientific research studies <laughs> explained and and then the personal stories behind it. And so then Greg and I did exactly what you and your partner did, Barbara. We went into the library, the Georgetown Library. We pulled up all the articles. We Xeroxed them. And I, I read the articles that you wrote about in the book. Mm-hmm. And I was just shocked. Um, I was shocked that that you were right. Your book was accurate. And and it just it changed my life. And um 
And so thank you for that. Uh, I mean, without that, I, you know, who knows? I mean, I might've just kept, you know, doing every single vaccine with all the kids. I, I, uh, um, you know, one of my kids might've had ended up having a bad vaccine reaction or I don't know. Um, I could be just a regular pediatrician today, you know, without that book, we wouldn't have this podcast. Um, I wouldn't be doing, you know, any of the work that, that I've done likely. So thank you for, for putting that out there. I want to thank you, Bob Sears, for being brave enough and for having integrity and for having compassion for these children particularly the ones who have had vaccine reactions and for standing up like you have, not only in the book that you wrote, where you were attacked viciously by Paul Offit, who has attacked me as well uh, over the years and who I sued for defamation in 20, 2009 uh, because of the, the, you know, the smear campaign. But you have stood up against so much opposition uh, from people, ignorant people within your own profession. And you have been an example and an inspiration to many people because you've done this. And um, so I thank you for what you've done. And I'm glad that I played a role and that uh, you read that book and that you made the choices that you have because we all have choices to make um, when mm-hmm. things happen to us in our lives. And the choices that we make define, you know, who we are and, and the journey mm-hmm. that we take. Yeah. So, you know, I hope other doctors has always been my great wish that doctors would wake up and understand they have to be partners with parents in helping to reform the public health system. Yes. To mm-hmm. make it more compassionate and humane and truly go back to the first do no harm principle and the precautionary principle and and the informed consent principle. So I know that what we're doing is right. Mm-hmm. It's the right thing to do. And um, I do remember meeting you, and I remember you just, your eyes were very big that day. <laughs> <laughs> in that meeting. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, it was like you were still, because you were being told one thing yes. in your medical uh, mm-hmm. curriculum. And then you were looking at this, and I could tell, you know, of course, Greg, yes, I've known him for many years. We call him the rocket scientist, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, And I knew that uh, uh, you were opening your mind, and you were trying to, you know, but but you were like betwixt and between. You were being Mm -hmm. told one thing Mm -hmm. by your colleagues. And then you were you were seeing something else, and yeah. and so I always wondered what would happen to you, what mm. what eventually would happen to you. I wanna I wanna kind of you know, move a little bit forward. So you you created NVIC, you were you were kind of moving forward with your work, and I'm curious about your very first government appointed committee position. Um, uh, on your biography, it's uh, let's see, it's listed as um, let's see which one is it? Is it the uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services National Vaccine Advisory Committee chair? Was that chair yes. position your very first position? Well, I not right away. I mean, I was a consumer representative on the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, the very first committee. Okay. Um, and that was in 1988, and okay. it was a four-year position. And um, I eventually became the chair of the subcommittee on vaccine adverse events. And okay. Uh, and uh, I, we worked together and, and created a report that 
clearly uh, the powers that be at the HHS didn't like. And again, I was hopeful that there could actually be something that could be done from the inside. And uh, they called in some heavy hitters uh, Hmm. that I knew and that I'd quoted in the shot in the dark. And they came in and they gutted the report. And I, and I sent a letter uh, to uh, them, the head of HHS, as well as members of Congress, and protested that this was not working the way it was supposed to. They were furious with me. I also, it, during that time, refused to sign the white paper on measles vaccine, which I talk about in my um, uh, uh, commentary I did in, I think it was March of this year, on the uh, science and politics of eradicating measles, which I did a huge amount of research into the history of the development of measles vaccine in this country. And I mentioned in there that I I refused to sign the report because they were trying to characterize the outbreak between 1989 and 1990, Mm -hmm. uh, the measles outbreak, uh, is something that they knew clearly they didn't have all the answers on and they were just saying, Oh, we'll just give another, another shot of MMR vaccine. And, and what I knew from the presentations at that committee was that there was a big question about whether this virus had changed character, mutated or whatever, that the strains were more virulent uh, and, and were not in the vaccine. And there there was a big question about it. And, it turns out that there was a, a different strain. So, uh, but then we didn't know that until many years later. So I was right about that. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Right? Did do you feel like um, at, uh, all? I mean, you were on you know five different committees over those years. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you had any real power or sort of any real influence over the system? And if so, what do you think was your greatest achievement during those committees? Mm-hmm. I feel the most, well, first of all, I knew that creating a historic record was very important. I knew, for example, that my comments on the FDA vaccines related biological products advisor committee, that there were transcripts and that those would be something that would be able to be available for historical purposes. Okay. Uh, I knew that the presentations I made at the Institute of Medicine in the public workshops were part of the historic record. I I am a believer that history is a great teacher. And so I knew that whatever I was doing there was going to be part of history. And I think probably the the presentations I made to the Institute of Medicine when they were creating reports, looking at the medical literature uh, for evidence that vaccines can, because we were the ones that got that into the 1996 law. We, we got in the requirement that the Institute of Medicine or another entity like the Institute of Medicine would have to be commissioned by HHS to look at the medical literature for evidence that vaccines can injure and kill. And so the series of reports that spanned 20 years between 1991 and 2013 were as a result of our getting that into that law. Huh. And those reports that were published reflected to some degree. Now, we didn't agree with all of them. We didn't think they should go. They went far enough. We didn't agree with all of it. But I know that our footprints are on there, on those reports, in acknowledging that vaccines can injure and kill because of the work we did. And so I feel, I feel good about that part. 
Good. Do, do they have people like you on those committees today? No. They don't have any more committees. The, uh, the, in other words, the, the federal advisory committees, like the advisory committee. Now, we do have we, – we just nominated and did get uh, Karen Kane is now mm-hmm. – who is the mother of a damage of right. a child who's no longer alive, but DPT. And she is now the consumer rep on the Advisory Commission on Childhood Vaccines. But that's – it's been a long time trying to get somebody on there. Um, and my, the FDA committee, I got Vicki Pebsworth, uh, who is an RN PhD mm-hmm. and she's been part of MBIC for uh, about a decade. Yeah. She, I got her onto the Burback committee, uh, and she did some other co- public engagement projects at CDC. Uh, we did them together, um, in the, in the two thousands, but I'd say for the last seven years, Probably they stopped around 2013 when they, they didn't didn't like that Institute of Medicine report in 2012 and 2013. They were very mm-hmm. unhappy right. with it. Well, no longer are public advocates. No longer yeah. is consumer advocacy considered to be uh, a good thing in this mm-hmm. country. I mean, we're, we're no longer citizens are no longer really at the table if they are saying something that's contrary to government yeah. policy. I'm I'm curious. I know that you've testified before dozens of state legislators, legislatures, and also in front of congressional committees, like you've said. Um, I'm curious. I mean, when I've done that, when I'm talking to legislators or I'm you know giving testimony, I feel like I'm talking the truth. And often, if it's a one-on-one meeting or a small meeting, you know that person is hearing you and agreeing with you, and they know what you're saying is probably the truth. But what's kind of been your experience on how your information is received? And do you kind of feel like, yes, almost all of these legislators agree with you, but then what? They, they just can't act on the information? They can't embrace it or, or, or use it just because it's too toxic to their agenda? Do, do you find that? Or what's your experience with that? Well, I know when I was sitting on the government advisory committees, especially the FDA committee, um, I was often the lone person who would vote against mm-hmm. um, recommending licensure of, of um, you know, for either safety or for effectiveness, efficacy. Um, and I remember they were always two days, two day meetings. And the first day I was okay. By the second day I had such a severe migraine. I could barely get out of the, <laughs> yeah. get out of it because <laughs> the, the problem is, is that you can tell the truth. You can, you can hold that banner but you know it's very very um fatiguing and very you know that negativity eventually gets to you because mm-hmm. they block mm. their minds and they huh. even if there are people on the committee who understand that what you're saying is true and they see it they're constrained by the government grants they get perhaps by the manufacturer grants they get they're constrained by political correctness and by their peer pressure from really going there. And it's sad to see because I can feel it from some of them that they know that it's wrong to vote the way they vote. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing for legislate in legislatures. I mean I, I I've watched California now since twenty fifteen and it just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Because you can see them they're conflicted. Yes. But they just can't they don't have the strength to do it. And that's why it's so extraordinary yeah. to find doctors like you, 
uh, and and others who have put it on the line and almost universally been their their careers destroyed. Yeah, well, Barbara, I mean, I mean, you've done so much over, over the years. I mean, I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious what has been your favorite thing that you've done, your greatest success? I mean, the thing that you look back on and say, wow, that was the most amazing thing that was personally fulfilling to you. I don't know, just maybe out of all your interviews, all your committees, your public hearings, the books you've written, your appearances and documentaries. I mean, what do you look back now on as saying like, wow, that was the moment that, that I look back on with a smile and, and really warms your heart. Anything that really stands out to you? Mm-hmm. Well, I I do. I have to say that debate with Neil Halsey in 1997, where for the first time informed consent was talked about on national television and and the issue of the chronic disease and disability epidemic associated with vaccines. That that was probably my favorite. uh, One of my favorites, anyway, debates that I did and a moment that I will always remember. It's interesting because I, I still have books to write. In fact, right. I have my major, my wager works are ahead of me. And, okay. uh, so I look back and it's like everything has prepared me mm-hmm. for yeah. this moment. Yeah. And, and here I am at the end of, I mean, the last certainly quarter of my life. And yet it, it, it seems odd to me because I, 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 it's gone so fast in so many ways, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. you know, but I, I, I think, uh, Certainly a shot in the dark was an important contribution. Um, and I think that somehow surviving, NVIC being able to survive uh, and still be a, a, in an, a disseminator of information is, is an accomplishment mm. as well because they've tried to take us out many times. And what's so nice about what you offer, what you guys offer as an organization is even though it's a national organization, obviously people internationally are positively affected by it and educated because there's so much information that you provide and you give. But the thing that I think really sets you apart, and I mentioned this to Dawn on season one, is that keeping up with the legislative battles in all of the different states, I know how overwhelming that is and how exhaustive that is to be able to have to know all the different bills that are being proposed, what their current status is, what has and hasn't passed, and to do that for all 50 states and to be a hub where people can go when they want to find out more about their state. I mean, it is just the amount of resource there is so uh, complete and so uh, it, it offers so much knowledge for for parents who are many times somebody will message me and go, I'm in this state and I don't know how to get involved. And honestly, one of the very first things I say is, have you checked NVIC and have you looked under the state and see how you can get connected um, and mm-hmm. find your own informed choice or health freedom group and, you know, in your state, that is the first place I think to send people um, because I can, I can feel that your information is valid and I know I can, it's backed up and I, and I can feel comfortable uh, that this is the place to go. Well, thank you for that. I, you know, Don Richardson uh, is an amazing woman, and uh, mm-hmm. she is deserves the credit for the NBIC advocacy portal at nbicadvocacy.org. She, in 2010, she came on board, and I'd worked with her since 1998. But uh, we worked on the Texas uh, getting the conscience belief vaccine exemption in Texas. But she, 
she created this portal and um, in 2020 we launched it. In 2010 we launched it, and uh, it is uh, it's it's a separate. You know, we it's a we have a whole department at MBIC devoted to the MBIC advocacy portal. Yeah. And she heads that up. So anybody listening who wants to know what's going on in their state legislatively, you're right. They can come in, register for that. It's free, and they can get the email in their email boxes when something's moving in their state, bad legislation or good legislation that has to do with vaccines, and they can also be put in immediate touch with their own legislators electronically uh, and get talking points, et cetera. So we're excited about the success of that that portal. Um, And... uh, you know, I, it's it's going to be tough in the coming years. They are determined to take away all these exemptions, and I mean all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people need to understand, as we talked about earlier, you have to become active. You can't be apathetic. You can't expect someone else to do it. You are the one oh, who yes. has to change the world. <laughs> yeah, so I want to um, yeah, I want to just walk people through really quick just so they know, and we put links to this up on our podcast website as well, but People basically, they can check out uh, the National Vaccine Information Center. You guys are nvic.org. That's your main nonprofit website. People can donate. Um, please donate. Please support Barbara's efforts because, uh, I mean, you guys are the pr- premier you know, national organization that I think has really taken the lead on this over the years. You have uh, thevaccinereaction.org. Um, that's a, a, a email newsletter that you send out, so people can. Yeah, get the your... weekly uh, newspaper journal uh, yeah. that is uh, also like a, its own little separate uh, operation. But uh, we do kind of eclectic, sort of looking at policy and law, and, and yeah. looking at different medicine and health, and yeah. So people like that because we we kind of don't do the ordinary thing. We pick the best that's out there that is kind of around the issue of autonomy and vaccination right. and health. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, then there's nvicadvocacy.org, which is the political side of things. But um, so yeah, everyone, all our listeners, you know, visit the NVIC website, check it out. And, and I love, if you look up under about us and you kind of look up, you know, who's on, who's uh, you know, on your board of NVIC, if you look at Barbara's bio, you'll actually see everything she's done, everything she's written and published, a lot of her committee reports that she submitted. You can click on links to them and read them. You can look at a lot, a lot, a lot of your old um, uh, television interviews, uh, newspaper, magazine articles you've written. There's links to everything. Is the Halsey interview accessible? On your, yeah, on your if site? you go on the top menu under informed consent, uh, there is my presentation that I made that day in 1997. Excellent. That you and I, that you saw, and there's the debate with Halsey is on that page. So that's a, there's it's about us, and you drop down and you can get both, you know, click on about us and see our board and our mission and all that, and you can also click on informed consent and see that. See that see presentation that. I made on moral right to conscientious belief exemption. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I know. I see that right there. It's about us. Click on informed consent and. It is. Uh, it is right there, Barbara. Um, you're currently working on a new book, and and is there anything else you want to tell I us am. about uh, either about that or what's next for you? You know, coming up, you know, this year or next year. Well, I I really um, you know I feel at this stage I really have to put down the history. I have to document it, yeah. and I have to to tell my story, and I have to 
like I say, there's 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 five books that I've outlined, so uh, I've got to go yeah. step by step through them, and I really want to spend a lot of my time researching and writing. Um, and we've got a bigger staff now, and that's going to help uh, us to to, tr- to take some of the pressure off of me. Right. Um, so you know, I'm I'm excited for the future. I know the challenges are big. But I, I truly, like I said earlier, I believe that people, when they understand, are going to respond. And it's not going to, I mean, their oppression is probably going to get worse before we're able to break mm. through. Right. I've and said the, the same thing. Yeah. yeah, I've said the same thing. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I've, I've resigned myself to the fight that I, that, to the fact that I'm probably going to be in this fight for the rest of my life. Um, and I'm okay with that. I, I know we're eventually going to win this because I don't think there's ever a time in history where where people on on the side that we're on where they haven't won. I think everyone's won this this victory in the end when it's something like this. So I, I know no, we'll freedom. Yeah. Freedom is a, a powerful, powerful motivation. Yeah. Uh, freedom of thought, conscience, mm-hmm. religious belief. These are these are human rights, natural right. rights that we. Must never ever give up for any reason. That is so true, and I'm. I just. I really want to thank you again for taking this time yes. to be with us. I know that you are in the middle of writing that book, and this is taking time away from making headway on your six month deadline that you want to get this all <laughs> finished by. And I look forward to hopefully being able to do um, a follow up with you in person. Again, we'll have an announcement coming soon that we can't talk about, but that would be amazing to be able to see you and 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 see you if you're ever out this way as well. I have so much respect for you. I appreciate and thank so thank you so much for the contributions that you've made because, like you said, the 40 years of groundwork. You know, I've heard people criticize the work that's been done before as not being enough or not being hardball enough, or I've heard different things being said, and I absolutely disagree with that. I think that every single thing that has been done by parents like you over the last 40 years and even longer, you know, going back to the 1850s where it really started. But this idea that everything that you've done and that parents like you have done has absolutely been, like you said, it's a slow moving process, but it's one that has been necessary to get to the point that we are. And we would be, the movement would be nothing without the work. And, and a lot of times invisible work, the work that nobody sees is being done. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. most of the time, that's what's happening. And I know exactly how much that you have all put into this to be where we are today. And I think anybody who's fighting for medical freedom, informed consent, health freedom, health choice, should be thanking these parents that came before us for allowing us to be in a position where we can make our voices louder and we're hoping to add mm-hmm. to it. But it is it is people like you that has that that has really been the, the force behind this. And I, I thank you for that. I thank you for inspiring me just with today's um, discussion and from our part one discussion and I have the utmost respect for you and uh, I really appreciate you being on the vaccine conversation with uh, Dr. Bob and I today. Well thank you so much because see you're going to carry you know you're going to carry it on it's important for people to understand that this has to go on it has to go on to the next generation and you're going to be the leaders uh, who are able to carry it on after we're not here so thank you Thank you for the work you do. Thanks for coming on and keep it up. And uh, I, will, I will see you in November at the VIP All right. event, event. All right. Look, looking forward to Thank it. Thank you guys. All right. Take care. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye bye.
The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.